what's happening, everybody? And welcome to another fun-filled and educational episode of Jazztopia. Spring is in full swing here in New York City, and the musicians are emerging from their COVID hibernation in droves to bring life back to this once-bustling metropolis. There's a lot of great stuff happening these days. There's a lot of music being made, uh, a lot of outdoor venues, some newly opened indoor venues, but you can really feel the energy, feel the energy coming back to the city here in New York, and I'm sure you can feel the same wherever you are. We're reaching the end of this, gang. We're coming out of it, coming out of it stronger than ever. With a new appreciation for the the subtle the subtleties of art and the majesty and wonder of life, right? I, am I the only one feeling that? I think I think everybody's feeling that out there. All right. Well, here in New York, we've got a bunch of places that are doing some really great shows. Uh, I'd like to I'd like to give a little shout out to some of these venues. So Terraza Seven in Queens has been putting on a lot of great performances. Uh, they have always been putting on great performances, but now they have a little outdoor space and. Uh, on uh, Sunday nights, Manuel Valera and the New Cuban Express plays, and they have a jam session to follow. Uh, other bands that you might find there are Manuel Valera's New Cuban Express Big Band, plays, uh, I believe, monthly but regularly over at Terraza 7, so be sure to check their website out. On May 26th, you've got the Ari Honig Trio over there, and uh, as well as the Terraza 7 Big Band playing once a month over at Terraza 7, uh, featuring former guest Michael Thomas and... Uh, and the amazing band, the amazing Terraza 7 big band. So be sure to check them out. As usual, Smalls has been keeping up, uh, putting on performances, and they've been doing their live streams. So you can check that out from anywhere you are. And you can always check out the Smalls live stream and donate to the musicians. Another great place uh, to see some live music here in New York is Cultural Lab LIC in Long Island City. They have a beautiful outdoor space, and they've been putting on some really great concerts, really interesting music. And uh, you can check out on, if you're in the area, on Friday, June 11th, last week's guest, Jennifer Wharton's playing with her band, Bonegasm. So you can check them out there. I was there at the last Bonegasm performance at the Cultural Lab LIC space, and it was super fun. So be sure to check that out. I'm sure there's a bunch of places all over the country putting on performances now. I know in my hometown of Boston, Massachusetts, Virtuosity Musical Instruments is hosting some really great live stream concerts. Uh, most recently, they featured a quartet with my friends Brian Friedland and Nick Brust. I've also seen uh, Mark Zaleski, John Bean, and other uh, staples of the Boston scene playing at Virtuosity. So if you're looking for some music, but you're not ready to leave your house yet, that would be a good place to check it out. You can find them on Facebook at Virtuosity Boston. All right, gang. Well, as we get back to it, I want you to remember to go out there and indulge in some good old-fashioned music listening and support the artists. Be sure to buy their albums. There's some, a lot of great new albums coming out, and a lot of people are putting on some great shows. So be sure to go out there and appreciate the, the great outdoors and uh, check out some new music coming out. Uh, speaking of supporting the artists, Shapeshifter Lab in Brooklyn is trying to raise some money uh, to be able to save their space from the ravages of the COVID-19 lockdowns. So you can find their GoFundMe page if you go to GoFundMe.com and search for Shapeshifter Lab. And uh, if you got a little extra money kicking around and you want to support the cause, uh, you can donate to their, uh, their GoFundMe to try to raise a little money and allow that venue to bounce back from the challenges involved in the last year. That is... Uh, that is a venue is run by Matt Garrison, 
as well as Fortuna Song and their crew, and it's a really great space, and I uh, hope you check out that GoFundMe and try to help them out. All right, well, our guest this week is pianist and composer Stephen Feifke. Stephen is a two-time semifinalist in the Thelonious Monk Jazz Piano Competition, and he has been featured as a pianist on over 30 albums. As an arranger and orchestrator, Stephen has written commissioned works for the Manhattan School of Music Jazz Orchestra featuring Sean Jones and John Faddis, the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra with Ken Poplowski, and the New Generation Festival with Orchestra Senzaspin and Dominic Farinacci. He's a recipient of the 2020 David Baker Prize in Composition from the Ravenia Festival and serves as musical director for the Tony Award-winning actor and singer Santino Fontana. He's also written for film and television and currently sits on faculty at the New School for Jazz and Contemporary Music. Steven's big band debut album, Kinetic, was released last month on Outside In Records and features Steven's 18-piece big band, including Ulysses Owens Jr., Veronica Swift, Alexa Tarantino, and Lucas Pino. The album is made up of 10 tracks, including both original compositions and arrangements of favorite standards, and can be found on all the platforms and through Outside In Music. Stephen and I discussed his new album, his approach to composition, and leading a big band in New York. We had a lot of fun, and I know you will too. So, without further ado, here he is, Stephen Feifke. Congrats on the new record, Kinetic, out uh, on April 9th, right? On Outside In? Correct. Yeah, and thank you very much. Mm. Uh, now, what was the... This is your uh, debut album with a, the your jazz orchestra, yeah? Yeah, debut big band album. Okay, sure. Um, and what was the what was the mindset as you were collecting these tunes? Are these pieces that you've had for a long time? Are they pieces that you played a lot? Have you were you writing a lot of new stuff, or what was sort of the mindset behind this the the whole album? Um, we had a regular gig at the Django mm-hmm. um, for a monthly thing for about two years. Um, so leading up to the recording, you know those. Uh, the songs on the record are a snapshot of, you know, the music and the band itself as it developed over the course of those two years um, during the residency at the Django. And, you know, we recorded it in January of 2019. We had planned on releasing it in uh, 2020. We had a string of release shows, um, you know, Vitello's in LA featuring Jane Monheit. We were going to play at Birdland featuring Jaleel Shah. We had the Blue Note lined up. Um, we had a number of shows that were going to be used as release gigs and then the pandemic hit and I was like, okay, this is going to be a couple months. Like we're going to just be a little bit shaky and then we're going to make it out to the other side. And then, you know, yeah. like everybody else, <laughs> it was like, you know, what? Uh, this isn't a couple of months. This is a long haul. We're in it for, 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 for who knows how long. And, um, I eventually just made the decision, you know? the time is here, like the music's ready, it's mixed, it's mastered, it's, um, it's time to put it out. So, uh, you know, it feels like a year later than, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, I feel that the music has even since that album developed and I've been working on a lot of new stuff that um, as soon as I'm able to get back into the recording studio, we are going to record mm. and put out and, um, you know, that's kind of the idea behind the title of the record as well, Kinetic, just a lot of built up energy um, 
you know, waiting to be released. Um, and that's kind of the, a snapshot of the story. Mm, great. Uh, perfect timing to at least record it. I mean, it's a great, uh, it's a big deal, especially I think in this day and age to be able to rehearse, you know, play with a band over and over and have a residency like that and get the music tight and get the musicians comfortable with the music and everything. And then, uh, you picked, uh, unintentionally a good time to get that music down because it could have been a couple months later and you would have been another year before you could even record it. Yeah, that's, that is true. Yeah, no, definitely worked out. So it was scheduled for 2020, but it came out 2021. You pushed it back a little bit so that, you know, and yeah, we've all been in this kind of wild zone for a little while. Been, yeah. Feels like it's there. coming back slowly, slowly, but surely. Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah. We never know. But that's, you know, the funny thing too, of course, is that everybody did the same thing, which is like, yeah, we'll be in this for a week. And then it became two weeks and then it became, you know, a year, but yeah. Who knew? Uh, Literally who knew? Yeah. No, we what are you going to do? So the title, so the title track kinetic, was that something that you had written before? And then you were like, we're going to, this is going to be the title track of the album or did the, the concept for the record and that particular piece coincide? Um, so that piece, uh, actually I had, a I wrote that for Ulysses, the drummer who's featured on that track. We had a gig slated for Minton's with the big band a, a while ago. Um, years ago, actually, and Ulysses was the person in charge of booking that venue at that time. Mm -hmm. And just before the gig happened, um, the venue went under, and so it never happened. But mm -hmm. I wrote that piece, um, you know, with the hopes that Ulysses would be there, and I, you know, I, I was going to ask him to sit down on the piece, and so I wrote something that I felt like fit his musical personality. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was originally called Use Blues. Use okay. Uses blues. Mm -hmm. And um, the piece wound up being, I, you know, I, it just wound up feeling like it had so much energy um, that I used it as an opener at every single show that I gave since I wrote it. Sure. And so I knew that I wanted to start the record with it. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I wanted to have Ulysses on it. Um, and so... Voila. Sure, yeah. You play it on it. The concept of the album arose independently of the of that composition. Um, took me a while to kind of figure out what I should call it, even though conceptually it was so clear to me. Mm -hmm. um, and once I, you know, I once I, you know, I some of my songs I write and I have great titles for them right off the bat. Um, or whatever, not great, but working titles. Sure, actually, right, yeah. Act, titles that actually work. Mm -hmm. And then I have placeholder titles, working titles. Sure. Um, and so um, once I realized that the record should be called Kinetic, that that encapsulated um, my, my concept of what I thought the record was about, what I thought that I was about, the band was about at that time, uh, I decided to rename that song mm -hmm. to match the uh the the title of the album got it one of the things that's so interesting uh talking to people about their individual creative process is that everybody has such a unique approach to so many of the different components of creating music and uh you know the just coming up with new ideas inspiration and, and the process itself and everything and one of the things that's been kind of 
surprisingly controversial. And I don't think that I even would have thought about this as a, as a, as an important component of the music is the titling of music of tracks, especially with instrumental music. Like is the point to try to convey to the listener uh, something to be aware of in the process of listening. You know, for some people, it feels like it's a matter of, I don't want to put some idea in the listener's mind. I want it to be a fully like subjective experience or whatever. And then in other circumstances, it's like the title itself will, um, will give inspiration for what the piece is going to be. Do you think about this? Like when you start to write a piece in your process, do you go in and say, here's a concept, here's an idea that I'd like to write a piece about and already have a sense for like, this is what it's about. Or do you tend to, and it may be different every time, do you tend to do, you know, sort of start from a purely musical standpoint and then try to feel out what that evokes? Yeah, I, I think not either, but rather both. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it depends on the composition. There are times where I'll go into a writing process having something on my mind, wanting to write about it. There are times where I'll go into a writing process and be thinking about a musical concept or idea, and then I'll expand on it and explore it. Um, and then there are times where I'll just be shedding, you know, and something will come up and, you know, the moment strikes and uh, just go from there. And in that way, I feel that in certain cases, composition is more about capitalizing on the moment of inspiration and learning how to connect with yourself when those moments do happen. We can't choose where or when or how inspiration arrives. Um, it just sometimes does. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned it before, um, you know, having a deadline sometimes certainly helps. Um, just knowing that you have to have a certain amount of music written for a certain instrumentation by a certain date. Sure. Um, but in terms of composition, I think that the titling of songs is has the ability to both be a primary or a secondary thing. Mm -hmm. um, so a certain amount of fluidity there. Sure. Uh, now, do you have a, do you have, let's say a routine an approach to writing, or is it a matter of mostly, uh, sort of, I, I don't want to say maybe waiting for inspiration to come. Um, I would rephrase that and say, trusting that inspiration will come. Okay. And then knowing, and then have learning still, um, how to recognize what that inspiration, how that inspiration can present itself. Um, whether it's in terms of like an emotion, whether it's in terms of like a musical idea or a concept or just like a mallet or whatever, you know, if the inspiration is, you know, it presents in a number of ways. And, uh, you know, the more, the more that I write, the more I think that music just inspires more music. Mm -hmm. um, so, the process looks different from composition to composition sure. or arrangement to arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a strict way of doing it. I have my score paper here. Um, I love to write pen on paper. I don't really love to use pencil, actually. Oh, um, really? I'd rather, that's, I'd rather, that's a bold I'd rather play, scratch, man. I'd rather scratch something out than erase it. Okay. Um, <laughs> like the process of turning around the pencil, erasing it. It's like, damn it, I messed up. 
um, I, I don't know. It just feels yeah. like it interrupts my personal process. I'd rather hmm. just like scribble it out or put it in parentheses or something like that. Um, sure. Give myself the ability to come back to it later if I'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, so my sketches generally look like super messy. Um, sure. Yeah. But they're just sketches. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I've always written on paper. It's always, for me, it's a tactile experience. And I think it's the same thing. It's the same thing that you're talking about where, first of all, you you can, even writing uh, English, you know, writing language, oftentimes I'll write something down on a piece of paper before I'll type it into a um, word processor or whatever. And I always felt like I was a little crazy, you know, doing that. It feels kind of old school, but I like that tactile feel of doing it and to be able to just run through something real quick and, okay, let's try that later. Let me do something else, cross this out and just stay with the flow of it. But of course, so often now we've got, you know, endless technology. We can have, you know, you could, you could play the piano, a MIDI keyboard into, you know, Sibelius or Finale or whatever, create the stuff on the fly. Um, but it's kind of amazing how many composers I talk to. It seems like a majority, it seems like I'm not crazy. Like the majority is really into the, is still into the, you know, pencil on paper approach. Something yeah, I like about I, that. Yeah, I certainly am. Uh, so where did you record it? Sear sound. Okay. Um, and Andy Farber was the producer? Yeah, Andy Farber was. There's actually a German word for his role, um, but I don't know it. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, like the ears in the in the control booth, just like saying, okay, like the, the you know saxes were out of tune there, or um, trumpets came in early there, like you like, or the room or the vibe in the actual recording room can be that was a rough take. We'll do it again, and, and Andy can say something like, actually. That was really great. Like you guys have have the ability to move on if you want to. Sure. Um, that was his role. Um, yeah. So he's listed as a co-producer alongside Andrew Gould, um, the lead alto saxophonist on the record. Mm-hmm. Andrew and I have been friends for a number of years, and he's been playing lead alto in my band since I think like the second or third gig or something, and has mm-hmm. literally never missed one. Um, well, that's amazing. I love playing with Andrew. I love working with Andrew, and over time, we just developed a really a relationship of trust and um i i rely heavily on his input um during the musical creation process sure um yeah and then yeah yeah now, i think you that, know andy from bmi of course yep yep um i think it's interesting well let me let me go off on this for a second because it's kind of uh i think something that i've noticed in your music is there is a, I would say, a strong bridge between the old and the new and the idea of like the, the classic big band composition and sort of a more modern approach. And I think I'm sure a lot of that is your approach to composition, but then a lot of it as well as the musicians in the band and the way that they choose to improvise and the way that they kind of take take the, you know, uh, their part of the music. But I think Andrew Gould is a great example because he seems almost like a shapeshifter in that he can create as the lead alto player. I'm listening to it. It's like, it's almost a characteristic sound in my mind of the whole album is like him as a lead alto player, being able to sort of like his vibrato and his way of leading the section seems to me to really capture kind of like the, the whole history of the music, like the classic big band sound. But at the same time, he can take a solo and sound like it's 2021 for sure. You know what I mean? Do you think about that link between like, uh, let's say a modern approach to writing or your own personal style and, and to what degree your influences come from like the whole, you know, tradition of swing, big band music and, 
uh, the, let's say the codified tradition. Interesting. I mean, I, I think you're, you're onto something when you say the, the, the sound of the band is a bridge between the old and the new. Um, and I, I certainly appreciate that. Um, I also tend to feel that the words like modern jazz is something that's thrown around in almost an arbitrary way sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, uh, the concept of time as it were, pertains to music is very fluid. Um, for some reason, uh, as a youngster, I used to associate Stravinsky as a way earlier era than, era than Charlie Parker. And yet there's famous stories of Stravinsky sitting at Birdland and Bird noticing that Stravinsky's in the front row and quoting the Rite of Spring and Stravinsky like, you know, Ah, yes, and whatever <laughs> yeah. Russian accent he had, you know. Yeah. So, so like, and it's, okay. So that's that's an that's the first thing that I'll say. Um, uh, what I how I'd like to kind of classify my music is something with a real focus on melody. Um, I think that there is sometimes such a concentration on orchestration in newer big band music, um, or more recent big band music that in some cases the the melody itself can be secondary or can be be lost in some ways. And, you know, I, I return to like a piece by Debussy, like, the, you know, the it's like Elmar, Delmar or something like that, mm-hmm. the waves, the ocean, um, where even though Debussy is like constructing these beautifully um, interwoven orchestrational textures, that there's still like a clear melody that comes across. And, um, I think that the, <clears throat> sometimes the, old um, can mean like a certain, can imply a certain thing about the melody rather than it can about the harmony or the rhythm or the orchestration. Mm. And so in my music, I try and focus on the melody. I try and make sure that the melodies that I construct, that I create, have a certain familiarity to them um, within my own soul. And sure. I think that... Um, the orchestration is oftentimes serving the melody mm-hmm. and the harmony rather than a melody and the harmony potentially serving the orchestration. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you're writing, let's say you're you're going to start a new piece, do you tend to write, uh, let's say, a lead sheet? style? Of, like, would you create the piece and then orchestrate it? Or are you arranging while you're composing yeah sometimes both i don't have a single process that i that i do all Mm -hmm. the time um you know i'm working on a piece right now where it's you know if i'm sketching i usually work from like a four stave system where like the bottom two staves are the grand step um or like and then maybe five staves actually i think this one's five staves and then i have uh three melody staves, basically three treble clefs or sometimes one of the treble clefs, the bottom one will turn into a bass clef or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then I'll be circling things and saying, okay, yeah, trumpets and mutes paired with, you know, paired with the flutes, um, something like, you know, so the orchestration becomes a part of the writing process. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I'll just be working on like a single, uh, a single melody line and just trying to construct something that I think is, is uh, fulfilling to me. And out of that melody, I oftentimes find that 
harmony emerges in a very clear way. Mm, sure. And out of the harmony comes the orchestration. Okay. The, loca- the location of certain elements of the harmony. You know, where where is the root of this chord? Is it higher register? Is it a lower register? Um, how can I color the melody using different orchestrational tools? Um, that kind of approach. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's see if we can dive into some of these tunes here and see if we can get even a little deeper into the into the approach sure. here a little bit. Sounds so good. we got into kinetic. So you wrote kinetic. It's actually um it's an interesting story because first of all, it's a killer way to start off the album. Like it kicks it Thanks. in strong. And to know that you wrote it for the drummer is like I think it's a it's kind of an important component of that. Do you find yourself often writing for specific instrumentalists? Like will will people that you yeah. intend to have play like inspire the people? Yes. Yeah, always. And that's kind of one of the biggest elements of this band, actually, is that it it is a real band. Um, the sure. fact that we have this had this residency at the Django is just uh, a real blessing in some ways, even like unheard of, actually, just in New York City to have a regular gig with a big band. Uh, sure. I grew up, you know, grew up when I first got to New York, I was at the Vanguard the Vanguard almost every Monday night to check out the VJO, um, mm-hmm. Jazzling and Center Orchestra, of course. Um, there weren't too many other bands who had like regular hits in the city. And so I feel very lucky to, to have had the opportunity to get the band um, working as an actual band. And sure. so as a result, when I was writing the music over the course of that residency, I was able to um, mold it to everybody's sounds and personalities. So all of the charts on the record are really are written for, especially if there's a soloist, it's written especially like specifically for that person. Interesting. And it really, I mean, it does make a big difference to have that opportunity to work with the same people and to feel out the way that they play and what might work for them individually. Yeah. Uh, what's the story behind unveiling of a mirror? It sounds like that's a very uh, evocative title. <laughs> Actually, I wrote that piece for the first time that I was in the BMI workshop. I, um, the, not that it's important, but I came in second place um, for that year. And that piece is written about a year in my old apartment, which mm-hmm. was a crappy mirror. Um, <laughs> It like just was super foggy in the front, and uh, like I would try and tie my time. I just stand in like a specific space so that I could like actually like do the knot and and like see myself doing it. Um, and eventually, just like standing in front of the mirror enough times, I got to thinking like, what is a mirror? Like, what part of this mirror is broken? It, and mm. you know, a mirror is a piece of glass with a sheet of metal behind it, and. I'm not sure when exactly I started to think this, but I was like, okay, there's mirror land and then there's like real life. And what I see in the mirror, what I'm actually looking at is this piece of metal, which is reflecting me back to me. Mm -hmm. And I started to think, okay, well, that's interesting. I'm only looking at myself tying this tie. Like what else am I seeing? And then slowly but surely I started to enjoy looking at the whole mirror. Like it didn't seem broken to me anymore. It just seemed like, okay, this is it. This is what the mirror is. So then at some point I, I was 
writing this piece. I started writing this piece and I was like, what should I write this piece about? And I was like, tying my tie and I was like, mirror, mirror. Okay, interesting. Like seeing things for what they are, seeing things for what they're not, seeing reflections rather than, I started to think, okay, what's the difference between a mirror and a window? And uh, the only difference is that a window is a sheet of glass, right? That you can see right through. And a mirror is a sheet of glass with some metal behind it, which shows you a reflection. Um, so the unveiling of a mirror refers to removing that sheet of black, uh, that sheet of metal, and just seeing things for as they actually are. Mm. Um, and at the time, I was thinking about this quote: um, "Window uh, eyes are the windows to the soul." Sure. And I was like, okay. I just started to notice like a lot of, you know, I, I like to play around with the words. Um, it's a little personality quirk, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I started to think, okay, like, what about eyes? What if they were mirrors instead of uh, windows? Mm. Maybe, maybe you see in other people what you want to see in yourself. And so, the first half of the piece, the unveiling, before the unveiling, that's the first half of the piece is like this kind of mysterious melody, orchestrated melodic figures in higher instrument groups. Well, first of all, actually first it starts in the baritone sax from the lowest member of the ensemble and then mm-hmm. transfers to flutes and trumpets and harmonies playing the same melody with low trombone harmonies below it. And over the course of the of the, the song, there's a, there's there is a moment like right in the middle um, where it goes into this groove, which turns the motif of the melody from the first half um, upside down not retrograde i think like negative and it's not exactly negative but it's akin to that Mm -hmm. and and so it's supposed to be the opposite um Mm. mirror has been unveiled oh interesting sure then you did you go into it i mean was that was that concept on your mind i mean the concept must have been on your mind to some degree as you do this to really try to capture that atmosphere yeah exactly so that piece is a good example of of like really, um, it's it's not quite programmatic, um, but it's but it's a subject setting piece. Sure, that's written about a specific concept. Yeah, cool. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I caught your uh, ASMAC uh, presentation the other day, where you got to talk a little cool. bit about the Sphinx uh, yeah. and and the construction of that piece. So you started off with a with a particular mode. And then you built the piece off of that mode. Mm-hmm. Could you give us like a little yeah. overview of that process? Sure. Yeah. Um, so that piece was originally written for the completion of my master's degree at Manhattan School of Music in my composition degree. And I was just on the road a bunch and had barely any time to finish the piece or write the piece at all. So I actually wrote the whole thing in 36 hours for a studio orchestra and talk about a deadline. Just yeah. had to get it done. Um, so I was like, the only way I'm going to do this is if I really strict to some, uh, if I strictly adhere to some musical material. And so I came up with that mode partially as a way for myself to um, um, what's the word? Partially as a way for myself to like force myself to be limited to a certain amount of information so that I could only it had just eliminated certain possibilities, mm-hmm. which would make it quicker to write. Sure. Okay. 
then of course the piece takes on its own personality and then I just followed it. But the, yeah, that, that mode uh, is written, it's kind of similar to, um, yeah, it's not quite any, um, yeah, you, you could call it like a B minor, bebop scale maybe. Uh, but it, even so, it's not it's it's not really because it just it's a nine note scale um, that has that I intentionally wrote to have a, quite a deal a good deal of chromaticism in the melody, mm-hmm. so that um, triads no longer look like one three five of the scale, but rather you know they're it's more similar to clusters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you think about it, a triad is um, if we're thinking about like the, the home position triad, right? Root triad is root skip a note, then you have a third, then you skip a note, then you have a fifth. Mm-hmm. If there's nine notes, then those that triad is crunchier and closer together, but our brains still recognize it as a triad if presented in the in a consistent modal setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, without showing the music, it's, it's a bit difficult to talk about the exact musical information, but the reason it's called the Sphinx is because um, there's a cadence from four to one. Um, there's a, it starts in D major, ends in G flat or F sharp, and it uses D minor as a pivot chord. And when it gets to D minor, right, D minor is the relative minor of D major. So there's a relationship there. And then D minor is the fourth degree of F sharp or G flat. So C flat, I guess, would be that degree. Sure. Be totally and harmonically correct. Um, we are composers after all, right? Um, so a perfect cadence is when you resolve from five to one, and a plagal cadence is when you resolve from four to one. So plagal cadence, it was around the time of Passover. I was just like, yeah, the Sphinx. Okay, cool. Got it. Interesting. Okay. So it has more to do with the, the chord progression than necessarily the sound of, I guess it's all part of the same, the same operation. Uh, one thing that I've found, uh, very interesting in a similar sense, I always, I always feel that, um, lim- I say this maybe too often, but limitation breeds creativity and the idea that if you can limit yourself to a certain, uh, you know, palette in whatever capacity that is, it gives you the opportunity to really work with those concepts. So right. one thing that I was doing for a while is working with Ethiopian modes, which wow, cool. deal with their pentatonics. So mm-hmm. there was a, there was a piece that I wrote a couple of years ago for the Ithaca college uh, big band that was based on an Ethiopian mode. And you really have to think about harmony in a different way. If you only have the five notes and some of the Ethiopian stuff is very wide intervals between the various notes. So all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, I got to write, this is triads, but instead it's going to be a different approach. It's going to be yeah. almost structures yeah. or whatever. Exactly. And it's yeah. a good opportunity to try to work that out. Did you find as you go, did you say, all right, this is good as a foundation, but I'm going to abandon this at this point or like, I'm going to make compromises in this, or did you really try to stick to the sort of foundation of the modal structure? Yeah. I think that that goes back to the question of inspiration. Um, and I, I, I feel that I trust my inspiration, um, to a T to an I. I guess. Okay. And, yeah. um, you know, like at a certain point, the music seemed to go in a different direction. And I felt that it would have been a disservice to me and to the piece to fight that direction. So I just followed it. Um, but I, and I don't view that as abandoning the source material. I view that as a continuation and, and an extension of the source material. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes the music can reveal things about itself that 
you as the composer is creating it. You can't necessarily see because you're too close to it. So I think about somebody like Beethoven versus Bach, right? Two very opposite composers. Whereas I think that Bach um, <clears throat> really followed the music, allowed himself to follow the music in a, in a you know, in a very linear way. Um, and whereas Beethoven, I more often than not feel like he's just like imposing his will on the music. Interesting. Right. Okay. Um, and saying like, no, you go here now. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> you know, whereas Bach's just like, and like concises the same chord for ever. Sure. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I don't think I'm comparing my own compositions to either of those masters, but um, I do think that it's an interesting thought piece to think about those two seemingly like opposite sides of the spectrum of compositions. Like where I find that like where, where I might lie on the spectrum on any given piece is different. Like how much do I want to like really make the music do what I think it should do? And how much do I want to just like focus and follow whatever the music tells me to do? So on this piece, you know, I think that the, that actually like the way that I wrote it, I'm allowing myself to, and I think this is probably true for other compositions as well. Just like, where am I? on that spectrum during that piece can change at any given time. It's never here. It's never just there. It's, it's fluid. Sure. Do you feel like there's, because this is a really interesting point and it's interesting. I feel like every composer in some respect has a relationship with the music, which takes on a life of its own. And it's a very uh, ethereal kind of spooky element of it, that the music can be its own entity even in the process right. of being created. But we all mm -hmm. know what that is. Like we've all been in that situation where you go, oh, this isn't what the music wants. Like it's its own thing. And it, it's not easy to um, maybe describe, but I think it's easy to feel as you're going. But do you, do you have a piece that you feel like would be a good example of you imposing your will more on the music or let's say an, an opposite piece where you said this thing almost wrote itself? Um. Ironically, I do feel like the Sphinx wrote itself. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I think that with the exception of the, the first, not even the, 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 the introduction, I feel like it became clear to me what it should be after I wrote the whole piece. Um, I wrote the introduction, the very last thing that I wrote. Mm -hmm. um, but after I wrote that opening melody, um, measures nine through <laughs> um, 25 measures nine through 25 after that you know that's me just being like constructing a very very careful melody mm -hmm. um, that hits some key points of the scale and harmonic lead is supported by triadic figures that arise from the modal landscape um, the rest of it is piece is on its own um, I'd say the unveiling of a mirror is a piece where I really forced it to do something. Okay. Um, that I I wanted it to sound a certain way. I I wanted to have that juxtaposition of the melody presented in two opposite ways, sure, polar opposite ways to represent the 
concept that I was thinking of, which is the unveiling of the mirrors and reflections versus um, seeing through. Um, there's got to be a fancy way to say that, but I just can't think of it right now. Sure. Um, no, that's a, I get it. Yeah, cool. Well, that's something else. Now you've got, let me think if there's anything else on that. I think it's an interesting approach and it's, I, um, it's interesting the way that you can just take different, let's say processes will, will yield different results in so many different ways. And it's our, um, as composers, it's like, okay, every piece has to be a new experience as both as a composer and as a listener. And what ways do you find that, you know, you can get into these different realms. And one of them is just to have, all right, let me start with a mode and go with that. Or let me start with a concept and go with that. It's the, 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 the creative process in and of itself is always sort of the most fascinating thing to me. It's like a primal human thing that everybody takes in a different way. And it's, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I think it's what, you know, draws us back to this all the time. Uh, you got, I think three covers on here, three arrangements of, of tunes uh, until mm-hmm. the real thing comes along. Nika's dream and on the street where you live Correct. were those pieces that you'd arrange for the band. And you said, all right, this is just going to be, I would like these tunes. I want to do them. Or are there, is there a particular reason that you chose those tunes to put on the album? Um, Nika's dream is I'll start there. Cause it's an instrumental cover. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's an arrangement that I've written for my set. We recorded that on my album, peace and time. Mm-hmm. And Denny Benack and I are the two souls. It's on the, on the set that CD along with Jimmy on drums, Jimmy McBride. And so three of, you know, three of us are in the big band. Um, and I just wanted to feature everybody. Mm-hmm. It felt like, you know, that actually along with the long gone, I wanted to have some sense of like a tie from one record to the next. Um, mm, okay. The big band seemed like a cool opportunity to expand on some of those ideas. And so Nika's Dream is one of the more, well, was at the time, one of the more recent arrangements that I'd done for the record. Um, and I decided I wanted to play it on the record and then put it on the record. Sure, yeah. Um, until the real thing comes along and uh, on the street where you live were two requests that were given to me by vocalists along the years saying that, that I, I, you know, whenever I would have a new vocalist sing with a band, I would always ask him, you know, as sort of a thank you for singing with us, I would just say, you know, I'd love to write you a new arrangement. Uh, is there any song that you'd like to sing? Mm. And they would say this song. And so um, the arrangement of Until the Real Thing comes along is just like a really kind of a, I, at, the, at the time I was checking out um, First Love Song, Requires Charlie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Song. And so the intro is somewhat akin to, like, in terms of melody and orchestration, akin to Brooke Meyer's um, introduction to that piece. Um, and then it goes into a, and I remember actually it was like the night before the gig, and I was writing it, writing it, and like I'd asked a couple of days before, like, hey, what do you want to sing this in? Um, it was originally for, originally wrote it as a male vocal chart and I've been writing it in E flat because that's just like the I'd listened to a bunch of like male vocal versions and that seemed like the average so I, mm-hmm. seemed, I thought that I would be okay and so the intro was written in E flat and then I got a text saying like 
yeah, let's do it in A major. <laughs> like, okay, sounds good. No prof, bro. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like a crafty turnaround, you know, like start at one, six, two, five, and E flat, E flat, C minor, and then just like slide down into B minor for two, five into A major. And that actually kind of gave the piece, uh, when I when I wrote that, that gave the arrangement a nice feel because it was shocking, right? And actually the subject of the song, you know, until the real thing comes along, like if, if, if how much I love you isn't enough for you, then I guess I'll just have to wait until the real thing comes along. Yeah. It's kind of the subject of the song. And so actually that cadence um, seemed to work in a, in a really interesting and unexpected way. And I... I'm glad that I didn't know the correct key until the very last second. <laughs> yeah, sure. And Veronica really just sang the out of that song. Yeah, um, she sounds amazing, man. That's it's she beautiful. Really, really does. What yeah. a what a marvelous musician. She really just took the arrangements and made them her own. Um, so on the street where you live, you know that's a that's another example I feel where I'm kind of imposing my will on the music. Sure. <laughs> I wanted. A darker take on the song i was like you know what the time is 2019 2020 right like I yeah wanted, you know it's not cool to be a stalker anymore right <laughs> if it ever was and that's kind of the story of the song if you if you allow yourself to have that perspective on my fair lady you know like that can be a perspective it's like you know what? it's not cool she said no like back yeah. off sure and so i wrote like this march arrangement and um yeah yeah, I was going to ask you about that because it does it it gives the piece a very different character, and I feel as though every time I hear an arrangement that brings out a different character in the music, it forces you to really reexamine what the lyrics are, what the meaning of the song is, uh, and that's one where I was like, all of a sudden, because I've heard that song a million times, but then listening to that arrangement, I had to think like wait a minute, what is this about? You know what I'm saying? Like it's a very different approach to doing it, and it's interesting. I was you know. Again, it's really a it's sort of a decision um, to make whether you want to try to really imbue a certain emotion or a certain concept into the music or whether it's just like, ah, eh, that'd be cool to do it that way as opposed to the, you know, the alternative or whatever. But you were really thinking like, I'm going to bring out a different side to this piece that people yeah. aren't always thinking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was preconceived and forced upon the music. Sure. <laughs> that was pretty good. Uh, let's see. We're going to, I don't know if we have to get, th- we don't have to get through all of them, but I want to try to cut. So Wall and Gong is, is another one from your um, septet recording, right? Is the, how's the, the, um, what's the process involved in turning the stuff from a, a small, a medium sized group to a big band? Is it kind of already in your head and you can do it or like, you know, you just re- sort of reinterpret it with the big band or um, how do you go about thinking about that? Um, the big band just allows for more, um, opportunities in terms of scoring stuff out, you know, just with there's, you know, in my septet, there's three horns, trumpet, alto, tenor, and then guitar, which I oftentimes refer to as the French horn of the jazz ensemble uh-huh. and either flexibly be a part of the rhythm section or a part of the horn section. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel that my rhythm, that, that my rhythm section either has three or four and my horn section either has three or four. Um, but either way, um, when expanding to a big band, that's nowhere compared to the 13 horns in the section. So there's just more possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Wollongong, um, I think actually, you know, I learned to say it wrong. It, it's a place in Australia that mm-hmm. is called Wollongong. It's a beach. Um, 
a town that has a beach rather. Gotcha. Were you there? Is that was was that the inspiration for the song? No, no, just randomly came across it. Like the look of it, uh, wrote a piece about the water and the ocean, respect oh, for cool. nature. So basically, in this recording, you know, Andrew Gould is like this surfer um, who slowly but surely, like, almost gets engulfed by this wave of drums, Brian Carter, and brass the section. Uh, sure, and makes it out unscathed, and then you know we uh, you know there's a, a longish journey and then there's a totally new section at the end which i perceive as just like the sunset you know you're just like lying on your back like in the ocean just like floating around um mm. and just peaceful relief um those kinds of words versus um uh, agitated um powerful those kinds of words for the first half mm-hmm. um and yeah, so the process of expanding it, you know, the melody stayed the same, harmony globally stayed the same, although I did um, incorporate the, uh, you know, the, the flute in a way that allowed me to um, accentuate some of the overtones of the harmony in a different way than I was able to in the set that arrangement. And mm-hmm. Alexa Tarantino is, is on flute. Um, and actually, like, while I'm chatting about this, I should mention that <clears throat> when Alexa joined the band, there was a shift in the band. And then when Jennifer Wharton joined the band, there was a shift in the band. And when Jennifer joined the band, it was, like, about a couple months into our Django residency. I just, like, immediately felt this shift, like, yes, this is the band. Nice. You know? Yeah. And when Alexa joined the band as well, it just opened up some really interesting possibilities to write and orchestrate for the flute. Mm. She's obviously a, a great saxophonist. Um, not obviously, I think she's a great saxophonist. Um, but she really is just an incredible flautist. Mm. And having the ability to use that texture in um, such an unrestricted way really opened up some possibilities for for my writing. And it's you know she's featured on Lucas Green as well with some food parts on Closure with some food parts and on Belongong as well just like sitting all the way on top of the ensemble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And word mm. travels fast as well, but you know Andrew Gold is also on food there. And, yeah, that's yeah. some amazing he's, he's, uh, woodwind he's amazing writing. too. He's really you know. Let's yeah. Think about the the saxophone section. I mean the whole band. I could just talk about them the whole time. Honestly, I, I love everybody who's who's in the ensemble. The kinetic band is just a, I feel it's like really a family vibe, and um, um, yeah, I mean that the whole saxophone section. Um, yeah, maybe I'm biased to be talking about Alexa because she's my fiance, but you know Andrew Gold, obviously, just like one of the baddest of our generation in New York City right now, I think, or in the world. Alexa, Lucas Pino, Sam Dillon, Andrew Gataskis, all of those people have really given me, and everybody else in the band too, has just allowed me so much flexibility in terms of what and how I can write for their instruments because they're all so virtuosic. On sure. Things. Yeah, counts for a lot. And to, ha- yeah. and to have, to know that they're going to be a consistent band and that they're going to be around and to create that kind of familial atmosphere means that it gives you a lot to work with because you're dealing with not only the instrumentation and the timbre of the instruments, but the personalities of the people in the band. Yeah, exactly. And not just their musical personalities, but also their human personalities. And 
maybe those two things aren't actually that different. I tend to think that they're not very different. Sure. I'd agree. Um, yeah. yeah. That's kind of what goes back into the fact that I, or the perspective rather, that I really feel that this is a family vibe of people who came together to be a part of a band rather than a group of the who's who to record an album. Sure. No doubt. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an important part of the whole experience. Man, I'll tell you something else that I find really interesting is that we take the big band format from the, you know, 20s and 30s and 40s or whatever. And over the years, even though the music has changed and evolved and there's been so many contributions from so many different angles, the foundation of the jazz orchestra has remained the same. And there's so much you can do with it. I mean, the difference between uh, a Count Basie chart and a Bob Brookmeyer chart and a uh, John Hollenbeck chart is pretty substantial. And yet you still have the core of the group, you know, the sections and the approach is going to be the same thing. I mean, the way that you can color the band, it's an, it's an interesting thing. I mean, do you think about Maybe when did you start writing for big band and what is it about the big band that is so compelling? I don't know what it is about the big band that's so compelling. I just remember being a kid and hearing a gigantic sheet of sound and saying like, how does that work? Where do all those notes go? What is this harmony? Um, I, I love harmony. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I first heard Big Band when I was in middle school. Um, my piano teacher, or actually at elementary school even, I think I was eight or nine years old. My, my piano teacher bought me a bunch of albums. She brought, she bought me McCoy Tyner's Soliloquy, McCoy Tyner's Jazz Roots, McCoy Tyner's Infinity, and Count Basie, the Atomic Count Basie, which is mm -hmm. the orchestrations. Um, and yeah, and I was kind of, I was just hooked. Uh, I was, I experimented writing for Big Band when I was in high school. I'm pretty sure they were highly unsuccessful um, <laughs> expeditions, but they were written nonetheless and provided a good first time. Sure. Got to get it out of the way at some point. Yeah. Well, you, I don't, th I think that unsuccessful is relative, man. But if you're, if you're working on the process in the beginning, I mean, that's a big <laughs> deal, you know, especially in, getting started in high school. I'll be careful not to show you those recordings. <laughs> um, Oh, yeah, yeah, no, you, you know, you figure out what works and what doesn't work at in, in various stages of your life. And you you figure out like what orchestrational textures um, support your melodic and harmonic ideas. Um, you know, maybe the trumpets are not the instrument group to play a low chord, for example, mm -hmm. those sure. kinds of things. Um, yeah. Even though they can play some notes like, you know, give it to the trombones, give it to the saxophones, something like that. Give sure. it a combination of everybody. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but I just I just remember uh, my team, my, that teacher who I mentioned, her name is Susan Castro, probably my most influential music teacher I've ever had. Uh, we still keep in touch to this day. Mm. Um, That's great. She was she played in a big band in the Boston area, and she would invite me to come play in the big band. Like she would say, like, hey, well, why don't you learn two of these charts that we're playing, and then you can come sit in with the band. Mm -hmm. And uh, that you know, I was just hooked. That's amazing. I, I where still, Where are you from? I'm from Lexington, Massachusetts, originally. Oh, okay. Boston area. What about you? Where are you from? I'm from Newburyport. Oh wow, Massachusetts. Okay, cool. So not too far. Yeah. 
Yep. Not too far. Yeah. I know. Uh, Lexington's got such a program, man. It's heavy. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you're from Massachusetts. Uh, yeah, it does have a really amazing program. Yeah. I know Malcolm Campbell and, uh, yeah. Uh, it's a whole bunch of people that came out of that. Josiah Reebstein, the tubists and yeah. a lot of people. Uh, yeah. That's amazing, man. So you grew up in the Boston area. What was your teacher's name again? Her name is Susan Capestro. Um, okay. She was a former student of Charlie Benakis. Mm-hmm. Or maybe she was a student of Charlie's while I was studying with her. Yeah, she's she's awesome. I attribute a lot of who I am as a musician today uh, to her. Just our, our early lessons were really not so much piano lessons as they were composition lessons. Mm. It's disguised it super well. Um, yeah, sure. So you've yeah. been composing for almost the same amount of time you've been playing the piano and, or it's been sort of yeah. an intertwined approach. Very intertwined. Yeah. I'd say, you know, my mom was my first teacher starting when I was about four years old. Um, and you know, then I had another teacher, a Russian piano teacher named Lena. <clears throat> and my mom walked in one day of her just like slapping me on the knuckles with a ruler. And she's like, my child is six. Don't do that to my child. And so I got a new <laughs> piano teacher and Susan just was where it kind of settled. And um, yeah. Right on. What was the big band that you would go see in Boston? What was, who was she playing with? I don't know the name of it. Um, I think it was a reading band. I don't know if it was a performing ensemble. Um, but when I was in high school, I started working with the Bean Town Spring Orchestra, mm-hmm. um, which is where I met Katie Thoreau and Matt Wittick. And well, actually, Matt Wittick, I think Matt, I met Matt before I started playing with with um, Bean Town. Matt was the student teacher at Lexington High School when I was there, and okay. he either strengthened my relationship with Bean Town or got me involved. Um, but anyway, yeah, that yeah. was like my first professional, like real pro experience was playing with the Bean Town Swing Orchestra. I remember like still like I like had the piano chart in front of me and just like had my eyes on the brass section being like, how are they doing that? <laughs> um, it's unstoppable, yeah. man. You got to have that, having that introduction to the music and having a sort of visceral, um, you know, connection to what's actually going on is, is worth as much as any education you can have, I think in that, uh, at that age. And it's great. She brought you into that world and was like, listen, you got to check this out, man. This is heavy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that'll last yep. with you, stick with you forever. forever. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And I think there's also, I, I like to give Boston it's due. I, I'm a, maybe I'm a little bit, I'm a little biased, but I Boston feel like bias. Yeah. People, people go there for school. People go to Berkeley for a couple of years or whatever, but don't really get into the scene, but it's such a rich music scene, especially with the fact that you've got all these kind of high, super high level educators. Um, but I think growing up outside the city for me certainly was a big deal because, you know, we would go in on Monday nights and hear the fringe at the lily pad or whatever, or we would go in all the time and check out different groups. We'd go to NEC and hear like, okay, Yuri Kane's running some ensemble of students or something like that. You know, when I was in high school, it was like a big deal to be near that, all of that going on and get a feel for what's happening. Cause it's like, it's totally eye opening to hear all this different stuff. Of course it's true. Probably. I mean, I'm sure it's true if you live outside of Philadelphia or it's probably true if you live, you know, there's probably some great musicians in Lincoln, Nebraska or whatever. I don't know, you know, but Boston in particular, I feel like has such like a, has such a vibe and it's a, it's um it's, a, you know, it's useful to be in that position when you're a kid and really get to feel that. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. So you went, you came from Boston, you went to New York. Um, where did you go to, you You did undergrad and then grad school, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, moved to New York in 2009. I uh, got my undergrad degree from NYU. 
graduated in 2013 with a major in jazz studies and a minor in economics. Okay. And I studied with um, a number of people. Don Friedman was my first teacher there. Um, Brian Lynch was an early teacher there. Mm-hmm. Um, Michelle Pilk and Gil Goldstein. And Gil Goldstein became a, has become like a lifelong mentor of mine. Mm. And uh, really cherished that relationship. And, you know, when I graduated NYU, I wasn't 100% sure whether I wanted to be a full-time musician. Mm-hmm. Um, thought maybe I could try and do something with my economic spec. I wanted to wind up doing going through a couple of interview processes at um, BlackRock and Bain Capital in Boston. Mm-hmm. And um, deciding that if I didn't try to do music now, then I never would. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of steered the ship in that direction. Sure. Uh, I steered the ship away from the economics world for a short time. Wanted to see if I could make a living being a musician. Mm-hmm. Was blessed with a couple of really amazing opportunities um, earlier on in New York City after I graduated, which allowed me to pursue artistic ventures and feel financially stable. And after a certain amount of time, I said to myself, okay, probably not going to go into econ, at least in terms of investment banking. Sure. Um, let me, uh, I'm going to, you know, I have some holes in my orchestrational knowledge that I really want to fill. I had always wanted to work with McNeely. Um, I was getting opportunities to work consistently as an arranger orchestrator and just found that I was having questions that I couldn't answer mm-hmm. and that I, you know, recordings and buying scores and studying scores can only do so much. You at some point have to work with a master. Sure. And McNeely was that master. You know, I forgot to mention that Dave Pietro was a close uh, is a close mentor of mine as well. He mm-hmm. was actually not just my professor at NYU, but he was also my all-states conductor when I was in high school. Okay. And we played some music by Maria Schneider and by um, Jim McNeely. We played extra credit. And I remember like listening to extra credit before we got to the first rehearsal for that band and being like, oh my gosh, and like a symphony. this thing is crazy. Yeah. And lo and behold, the first thing that Jim talks about during our first composition seminar at MSM is extra credit. He's like, yeah, guys, so I want to talk to you about, about form today. So here's this piece I wrote, extra credit, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like over and over again, just like mind blown from what he's saying. And so I attended MSM from 2016 to 2018, um, got a master's degree in jazz comp, jazz composition, mm-hmm. um, studied with Jim and Mike Holliber, and Here I am. Here we are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing, man. That's great. So you've got this record came out, came out on outside in. They've been doing a lot of great stuff, man. They've been putting on a lot of great yeah. music and mm-hmm. it's amazing. Um, and now you've got some new music in the works. You're ready to record. Actually, yeah, I've got music in the can that's um, being, yeah, just I've been saving up for oh, wow. some time. I've got a couple of projects that I'm going to be releasing music from and actually releasing the earliest recordings of my big band that I initially put out on YouTube. I'm releasing that as a record on La Reserve record label um, coming out on October 1st, which is okay. a prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. And I've got, yeah. And then I've got a, I thought the title kind of fit 
Um, sure. I recorded some trio stuff with Dan Shalinsky and Brian Carter, um, who are two of the musicians in the rhythm section from Kinetic. Mm-hmm. That one is called The Role of the Rhythm Section. And those are two albums on this on the near horizon. Okay. And, and those are recorded? Those are all new, recorded? Those are all recorded. And then as far as new big band stuff goes, actually, when we did the Kinetic session, we got 16 tracks down. And can't fit 16 tracks on a record. Sure. I had to choose. And so I've got another six tracks that I'm sitting on and I'm going to add to. Mm. to put out another record um, probably sometime next year, late 2022. And then one thing that I'm super excited about, actually we're recording for it right now, is I co-lead a band that uh, started an ensemble with the great lead trumpet player, Bijan Watson. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might know from the Clayton Hamilton Orchestra. You might know him from Monkestra. You might even know him from La La Land. Okay, um, yeah. Also, I, the Ein and Certo Jazz Orchestra. In Boston. Yeah, of course, in Boston. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, uh, Dijon and I started a band called the Generation Gap Jazz Orchestra. And we are recording this month, uh, over the course of the next month. And it's, um, we've got some exciting people who are in the band. Dijon is lead trumpet. Mm-hmm. Darby. Mike Rodriguez. Danny Janikucci make up the trumpet section. John Tedchock is lead trombone. Javier Nero, Julia Vandiver, and Jennifer Wharton make up the trombone section. The saxophone section is Alexa Tarantino, Christopher McBride, Tom Lohr, Roxy Pass, and Lauren Sevian. And the rhythm section is made up of Ulysses Owens Jr. on drums, Dan Chalinski on bass, Will Graham on guitar from LA, and I'm playing piano. Now we've got a couple of exciting special guests as well who I can't announce just yet. Um, okay. But super excited. Yeah, as if there's more special guests to be had. Um, so it's pretty good. So it's so that I, I just um, finished writing the music for that, and we are recording. Yeah, as we speak, actually. Um, right on. So that, that's kind of what's coming up on the horizon for me. Right on. Now, a couple things. When you recorded Kinetic, how long did it take you to do? How many sessions did you do? Because it, it obviously helps to have. Um, the band is already rehearsed, so you don't, I mean, you could rehearse it, but if you've already played the tunes a lot, you have the opportunity to kind of knock out a bunch of stuff at once, but what was the process like? Yeah, we, well, we did have a, a long rehearsal for the, you know, it's different playing a gig and having a rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So like how I like to present the concept of the album is that it's the feeling of a live gig with the polish of a studio record. Mm-hmm. Um, so the um i just totally lost my train of thought i apologize the uh the um, pro- oh, yeah, the- how long was it it was two two days long okay we had, we had two full days of recording with a full band and then we had some local days um to to um record the vocals mm-hmm. and yeah sure and so you got 16 tunes out of it and you chose these 10 because they yeah. fit the flow of the album or what was it about these 10 that yeah kind of what what i went into it thinking is like okay we're like i had i had a i actually had a list of what i wanted to go on the record already which is this collection of tunes and um but i but i thought to myself okay like if we have time to record extras then i'll just choose which ones are the best and put those ones on whatever that means the best sure and um 
eventually and and then what happened is that i just loved all of them so um yeah i was really blown away everybody played their butts off um everybody just put their all into the music mm-hmm. um it was very it was very cool yeah awesome so if people want to follow so you got a bunch of stuff that's about to come out people want to find it you got your website where else can they follow your your trajectory here, your new releases? Yeah, my website is the best way. Um, joining the mailing list from the website is probably the best way. My my um, website is www.stephenfifemusic.com. Stephen is, is spelled with a V. Fife is spelled Epiprank, E-I. Epiprank again, K-E. And then you can also follow me on Instagram at Stephen Fife, on Facebook at Stephen Fife Music, and on YouTube. Stephen. Great. Well, congrats again, man, on the new album. That's great. And I'll be looking forward to hearing Thanks very uh, much, Bobby. hearing what else comes out, man. It's gonna be awesome. It's Thank great. You. Thanks for having me. Really of course. Thanks for doing it. Right on. All right, gang. Thanks for sticking around for another fun-filled episode of Jazz Topia. Big thanks to Stephen Feifke for coming on the show and talking about his new album, Kinetic. Be sure to pick up a copy through uh, Outside In's website, or you can check out Stephen Feifke's website. You should also make sure to follow him on the social medias and keep up to date with his upcoming projects. Well, if you like the show and you want to stay up to date with us, you can follow us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your online radio-style entertainment. Be sure to leave us a nice review, and that's a big help for us. And tell your friends if you like the show. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at, at Bob Spellman or on Facebook at Bobby Spellman Music, and I'll keep you up to date with what's happening with this show and everything else. All right, gang. Well, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, take care of yourselves, and I'll see you next time. See ya. See ya.